we turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We take our text out of this chapter. We'll read the entire chapter, but we'll begin already at chapter 2. So we begin at chapter 2, verse 23. We hear the inspired word of our God. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take verse 2 as our text for the sermon this morning. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Exodus teaches the wonder of God's deliverance from sin. It pictures Israel in the midst of the bondage of Egypt, which is a picture of us in the bondage of sin. Pharaoh is a picture of the devil, as the devil seeks to bring God's people into that bondage and keep them in bondage. But God demonstrates again and again through the book his faithfulness. God will deliver his church, and God will deliver his people from that bondage of sin into which they were cast in Adam and Eve. God is faithful. And God's faithfulness is on the foreground here also in this passage. Moses had attempted, as you remember, to bring about that deliverance earlier on. He had deemed himself after 40 years of age to be ready to deliver the Israelites. But it all turned against him. And he was forced now to flee from Egypt after having killed that Egyptian. Pharaoh now is after him, and he flees now and spends time in Midian with a man named Jethro, who is a priest in Midian. During this time period, Moses marries one of Jethro's daughters, and he spends time as a shepherd. All during this time, Israel is under tremendous affliction in Egypt. No one knows exactly when that affliction began, but they were already being oppressed when Moses was born. So at least 80, 100 years, that oppression now had been intensifying upon the Israelites. It's hard for us even to imagine such struggles as the length of grief they endured, being required to kill their sons, being required to work as taskmasters for Pharaoh, being whipped, 
All that oppression had continued for multiple generations. And part of the length of that time was due to the sinfulness of Israel. Israel began to love Egypt. They liked Egypt. They were satisfied with life in Egypt. And they were not quick to cry out for deliverance. But increasingly, God worked to cry in the hearts of his children. And they now are groaning. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. We read in chapter 2. Israel had to learn to wait on the Lord. And she had to wait so long from an earthly perspective because God had a purpose. And God was teaching this important truth. Salvation is all of the Lord. A truth that we also of necessity need to learn. Now as we read this passage and think on this history, we think of the words of Psalm 77. Versified in the Psalter that we sang, 2.10. Shall I his promise faithless find? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hopelessly removed his love and grace from me? These are the struggles that no doubt went through the hearts of Amram and Jochebed, Moses' godly parents and others. And then Moses, for years in the desert without any word from God, had to have become discouraged. He didn't have a Bible that he could turn to for comfort. God was not speaking to the people during this time period. And beloved, we know the experience at times in our own lives. What child of God has not gone through times of intense struggle, sickness, pain, adversity, loss? And we experience such thoughts. We think, where is God? Why isn't God with me? Has God forgotten about me? Has God cast me off? And as these thoughts run through our mind, through it all, the psalmist expresses yet, I trust him still, though in my grief no answer yet has brought relief. God directs his children to himself and to his promises. And that's the lesson that God teaches us again and again through our trials. God is always faithful. God has not forgotten to be kind. And we need to lean on him. We need to put our trust in him alone. That's the lesson that God is teaching the church throughout all ages. Different struggles, different challenges at different time periods of history. But through it all, God admonishing us to be patient and to trust in him and to look to him as the one who alone is faithful. We learn that lesson here in the lesson of the burning bush. We look at the bush that was not consumed, noting, first of all, the fire. Secondly, the name that's given here, Jehovah, I am that I am. And then finally, the trust that is required. Behold, the bush burned with fire. In the Old and New Testaments, we talk about silent years. We're familiar with the time period in the New Testament, especially from the time of Malachi up until the time of Matthew. There were 400 years during which time we don't have any indication of any direct revelation from God. An extended period of time where we don't have any prophets, we don't have anyone that is speaking directly God's word. Also, we have that period of silence in the Old Testament. And it compasses the history here of which this is a part. Almost the same. From God's appearance to Jacob prior to his going down to Egypt, God telling Jacob that he could go to Egypt and that God would allow them to remain there for a time until he would bring them back again, until the time of now God speaking to Moses through the burning bush, we have about 400 years, 430 years. A time period again during which there was silence. God was not speaking to his people. And now Moses, 
is 80 years old, living in Midian as a humble shepherd, when God finally again, after a 400-year period of silence, makes his presence known. And he comes reminding them, I am a faithful God. I am a God who will not cast you off. Now Exodus 3 records here that Moses, working for his father-in-law Jethro, was driving his flock near Sinai when he came to Horeb. Horeb is identified here as a mountain of God, and likely it wasn't known as that previously. But now this incident is what makes it so that this mountain receives that designation. And now, as Moses finds himself then at Horeb, watering his flock, he looks around and he sees this bush that is on fire, but it's not being destroyed. And that's the occasion here. Moses, on the backside of the desert, sees this bush. Now, Moses is a very different man from the previous chapter. To see Moses now, one would hardly be able to guess that this same man grew up in the courts of Pharaoh, that this same man received the best of the education that the world at that day could give. Moses was living in a very simple, crude manner now. The fact that this man had once won praise from teachers, that he had been living a life that was that of a prince, was not possible to be seen. And we know his age, according to Exodus 7, 7, when he's coming first to Pharaoh, was 80 years old. So now Moses, his appearance is crude. His words are very few. He had been transformed by God. And there's a gentleness now. There's a kindness. There's a patience. There's a meekness. There's a childlike faith and trust in God that's now evident in Moses. Moses learned In the great schools of the world, much. But now God was teaching him as a humble shepherd more than he ever could have learned in those courts of Pharaoh. And God has given him to learn lessons here in Midian having to do with leading sheep, tending sheep. God preparing him to be the shepherd of his flock. Moses now is about to experience a lesson here in Midian that would exceed everything that he had learned in the greatest schools of the world. God's invisible presence leads Moses here to this bush. And as Moses is watching this bush, he's struck with the fact that this bush is not being reduced to ashes. This must have been a common sight to find bushes like this on fire, and they would be burned quickly and destroyed. But this one is different. And as he gets closer to check it out, he hears a voice from heaven that stops him and gives him to know that this is a wonder from God. The angel appears, and God calls to him, verse 4, Moses, Moses, and he says, here am I. And he says, draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Now, we need to delve into some details here with regard to this matter. First of all, the bush. What is this bush a symbol of, and what is it a picture of? The bush here is a picture of God's people in the midst of their afflictions, in the midst of this world. As we find ourselves in the midst of this world, we are as that bush. 
This bush would have been a thorn or a bramble bush. So it was not a bush that was highly regarded. It was not compared, for instance, to a rose bush, which would have been beautiful and something that would be worthy to have at home. This was the lowliest of all plants. And it's striking that in the parable of Jotham, the son of Gideon, Gideon compares all the different plants and then he compares them to God's people. And he compares God's people to the bramble bush, that which is the lowliest of all the bushes. That which would naturally be discarded and forsaken. God's people are the lowly, they're the meek. God's people are those who are the despised, the rejected. They're as this bramble bush. And so this bush is a picture of God's people. And the flame, the fire, the afflictions, the trials, the struggles that God's people endure through the course of this life. The bush itself is not God. It's evident from verse 2 here that God is distinct from the bush. We read, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, there's at least three elements that we want to look at in more detail here briefly. First of all, Moses sees that small flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And that small flame represents the presence of Jehovah God. The angel of Jehovah, the angel of the Lord, appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, why does God appear to Moses in that manner? And we delve into the scriptures, and we have, for instance, in Hebrews 12, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. And that's actually a quote of Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, the Lord thy God is a consuming fire. And in the Bible, fire refers to really two things. Number one, the idea of purifying, and number two, the idea of destroying. And so we have both pictured here in a sense that here's this fire which is that which would destroy but yet there's a marvel the bush is not being burned up why is the bush not being burned up now the fire is a symbol of God's holiness God's righteousness God hates sin and God would destroy the sin and the sinner when men and women walk in disobedience and rebellion against God God is filled with wrath he's filled with sore displeasure of them and that wrath is as a consuming fire that destroys the wicked. But at the same time, God is a God of love toward his church and his children. And Jehovah God comes with trials, with afflictions, as with fire, not with the intention to destroy, but to purify, to cause that through their trials, through their afflictions, they might come forth as that which is as gold now, cleansed and purified from imperfections. God appears in the wilderness in this fire. Now secondly, the entire bush was set aflame with fire. And that symbolizes the fact that God's people as a nation of Israel was experiencing the fires of persecution. They were in the midst of deep, deep tribulation and trial. And while the bush is burning, God explains to Moses that he had seen the affliction of Israel and their oppression, by which the Egyptians oppressed Israel. Jeremiah talks in chapter 11, verse 4 of Egypt and calls Egypt an iron furnace. That's how intense this oppression was. The burning bush is pointing now to Egypt's oppression of Israel as Israel was in the midst of Egypt. But third, that flame of fire 
that appeared in the bush, that small flame set the whole bush on fire. And that demonstrates the sovereignty of God here. This was from the hand of God. God is the one who was behind the afflictions, the struggles, the trials that the Israelites were experiencing in Egypt. God was the one who had sent that persecution. Now, Israel had sinned against God. In response to that sin, God now was chastising. He was bringing about his punishment upon those who were the unfaithful, the unregenerate, and he was bringing his trial, his chastisement upon his people in Israel. The children of Israel had desired Egypt. They wanted what Egypt had to offer. And Stephen in Acts 7 reveals that Israel was a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. And God's chastisement and God's punishment then is upon them. Now they would have been consumed with the fury of God's wrath had they not been God's people. And that's the wonder here. Israel is God's chosen people. As such... They're experiencing this devastating affliction in Egypt. But what is their hope? What is their comfort? God is in the midst of her, and therefore she shall not be destroyed. The bush is not destroyed. The fire remains, and yet the bush is not burned up. And what a glorious fact then. Though God was displeased with them and their sin, God had no delight in sin. This was a people whom God had loved from eternity. And that points us then to the wonder the bush was not consumed. This is the wonder of the history of God's church. As God's church finds herself in the midst of this world, and as she's oppressed, and as she experiences hardship, she is not consumed. Because God is in the midst of her. And God preserves and keeps her. Now it may have been common in Moses' day to see dry bushes burning in the desert. And normally, they would be consumed in a moment, and they would be destroyed. According to the Hebrew language here, this bush is burning intensely. But something is happening, contrary to nature, the bush is not consumed. So even though it's intensely on fire, and it's burning with an intensity that one would expect then, it to be destroyed in no time, it's not consumed. Israel, under the hardship and the persecution of the Egyptians was not destroyed in God's wrath. God was not casting them off. Now Israel had been unfaithful. Israel may have thought, God has forgotten us. God has forgotten to be kind. God's promises are of no effect. But that hadn't happened. God is faithful to his word and to his promise. And God's purpose with Israel was not to destroy, but to purify God was not destroying this bush, but God was teaching Moses through it his purpose with his church. Israel is unfaithful. God's church is unfaithful. God's church and God's saints deserve to be cast off. God shows his mercy, shows his grace, and they continually yet turn their back on him. They forsake him. And yet God remembers his church. God will not cast off. His own. God in his holiness could rightly have consumed Israel in a moment in the fire of his wrath. However, we read, I am Jehovah, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. 
And that gets at the wonder that God is revealing here to Moses. I am Jehovah. And because I'm Jehovah, I am faithful to my word. And I'm faithful to the promises that I've made. And I will not then destroy the people whom I have chosen. God makes use of trials. He makes use of afflictions for our chastisement. As a father loves his children and corrects them when they do wrong, so Jehovah God corrects his children in love, directing them to repent, turning them from their sin, and preserving and keeping them by a wonder of his grace. And that which is at the heart then of the wonder of this passage is that name. That name Jehovah, which is described here, I am that I am. And we look at that for a few moments. I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In verse 6, and then later on in verse 14, I am that I am. God is Jehovah, the faithful covenant-keeping God, who keeps covenant and reveals himself here as I am that I am. Now we're familiar, Jehovah is one of the most beautiful names that God gives to himself. And God gives us that name in order to know a bit concerning who he is. The name Jehovah gets at the fact that he is a covenant-keeping God. That he is a God who will make promises and he will keep them. He will maintain them. Now that name was feared by the Israelites. So as we read the Old Testament, we find them being very reluctant to take that name on their lips. They would call it the name rather than saying Jehovah. Sometimes they would simplify it and call it Yah or Yahweh. But more often than not, they just would not use it because they were so fearful of using it in a wrong way. This was a name that worked reverence and fear in their hearts. It taught that God is the unchangeable God of heaven and earth and that he alone is the independent one and that he is the one who maintains and keeps covenant. Now, God describes here, I am Jehovah, I am that I am. And it's good that we just try to wrap our minds around that significant name, I am that I am. If we think about that, if we were talking about ourselves, we'd have to say, I am what I was. Because never can we say, I am that I am, because we're constantly aging. Every second, we're a second older now than we were previously. So that never is there a point when we ever can say, this is who I am, and I am this, because constantly there's change, there's decay that's taking place in our lives. Jehovah God is the same yesterday, the same today, the same tomorrow. I am that I am. There's no change in God. And as such, God is the only independent one. No creature can ever confess that. No creature can say that I always was, because We have a beginning. We were born. We were created. We are what we are by the experiences of life and by our parents and by all of the different aspects of the ways in which God raised us. God, as the creator of heaven and earth, as the independent one, is able to say, I am that I am. I am the fountain of everything that's good. I am the only one who is sovereign Lord of all things. I'm the only one who always was and always will be and who's never changing. The absolute independent, 
unchangeable God. God comes to fickle, mortal, dependent, changeable men and women in the midst of this world and says, I am that I am. I am your God, and I will forever be your God. I have established covenant with you that is an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that cannot be broken. It's a covenant that's not conditional. It's an everlasting covenant. So that Jehovah teaches the wonder that he chose to himself a people from eternity, according to the eternal decree of election, upon whom he would set his heart, and he will now preserve and keep that people to all eternity because he's faithful to his promise. I am Jehovah. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God will not come to the point and say, I'm sick of them. This is enough. And now I'm going to cast them off. God's faithfulness is seen that God is the God of our fathers. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible records sins that they committed. Did God then decide, now I'm going to cast them off? God is a God who establishes covenant. He swears an oath by himself, and now he maintains that which he has spoken. And this teaches the wonder of wonders. Salvation is God's work. It's God's work alone. It's not the work of men. If it were up to men, we would all perish because we're fickle, we're changeable. But Jehovah God reveals his eternal counsel, his promise, his word of grace, his plan as the I am that I am. I have spoken, and I will maintain it, and I will keep and preserve it. That covenant faithfulness of God is on the foreground. And what a wonder it must have been to Moses. Again, fears, questions, where is God? Why is it that he's allowing his people to be so, so troubled in Egypt? So much oppression, so much hardship. Has God forgotten? No. God comes. I am that I am. I'm not forgotten. I am faithful to my promise, and I will maintain that which I've spoken. God appears to Moses here, according to verse 2, as the angel of Jehovah. Now, the angel of Jehovah is not merely a created angel. It's God himself, as becomes clear from this passage. God is the one that's speaking out of this flaming, fiery bush. And God is the one, then, who's identified here as the angel of Jehovah. He's the angel of God's presence. And God's name then is in the midst of him. And we know from other passages in the Bible, the angel of the Lord, a prefiguration to Jesus, a reference to Jesus before he was born and before he lived his life in the midst of this world. God is saying to Moses here, and he comes to say to us as a church of Jesus Christ, why is it? That the church, why is it that Israel is not consumed? I am in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. I will preserve and I will keep her. Why? Because I am Jehovah. I am the faithful God of the covenant. I have set my heart upon her and I will preserve her and I will keep her. And so God sets up this event, this bush that's burning but not destroyed as a revelation of his name as a testimony to his faithfulness, and as that which accompanies then all the promises that he sets forth. 
And God urges upon Israel, remember and believe and trust. Trust in the living God of heaven and earth. Don't look to the gods of Egypt. Don't look to the gods of the heathen. They can't help you. Look to the one who is the almighty, unchangeable, I am that I am. This revelation ranks among the greatest of the self-revelations that God gives to his people throughout time. And this name is established as a memorial to all generations of God's faithfulness to his people and to his church. Now, how does this apply to Israel during this time in Egypt? Again, God is coming to Moses and saying, Moses, you think that I've forgotten my people. You think that I, the great God of heaven and earth, have forgotten my people? Do you think, Moses, that I have changed since I made those promises to Abraham that I would be a God unto him and to his seed, that I would establish with him a covenant that would be an everlasting covenant? Even when Israel sinned, I remembered her. And I brought her into trouble because of her sins. I chastised her. I oppressed her, but I never forgot my own. The gods of Egypt, they're no help. They're not faithful. They've not been with you. I am the everlasting God who loves and preserves to myself a people to all eternity. These words, beloved, must have stirred the heart of Moses. They must have stirred Moses' hearts to the depths. Here was the hope. Here was the longing of his whole life. Already on the lap of his mother, he had been taught these promises of God. He had learned of God's promise to deliver his people Israel. To what degree Moses understood and knew himself to be part of that, we just don't know. But Moses, as a youth, had applied himself to study, to seek to be used by God. And then... He had blown it from an earthly perspective. And now God's voice comes again to Moses, assuring Moses, I am faithful to my promise. And that time will come. And not only are you going to witness it, you are going to be the one that I'm going to use to accomplish this deliverance. And Moses now is a different person than he was 40 years ago. Moses now in humility says, what? Me? I'm not able to be used. I am not Faithful, I can't. God in his faithfulness, promising and not forgetting his promises. And beloved, that's the hope of the church throughout all ages. That's your and my encouragement. Do you think that God has forgotten to be kind? We look at our lives sometimes and we think, God forgets to answer prayer. Where is God? He seems so far away from me. And with David, with the psalmist, we struggle, we wrestle. I take two steps back. It doesn't seem like he's there. I go ahead. I can't find him there. But this can't be true. And it's not true because Jehovah is the I am that I am. Now, how is God's faithfulness demonstrated, especially in that he took that fire of God's wrath upon himself? Jesus took that fire on himself. Our sins make a separation between us and God. Now, does that mean that God forgets his people because of their sin? God can't overlook the sins of his people. So how will God bring about this reconciliation? We know the wonder of the gospel. 
God anointed Christ as the head of his church, as the one upon whom he would pour out the fires of his wrath for all the sins that his people had committed. And there on the cross, the waves of God's wrath poured over Jesus Christ. But he was not consumed. He endured it. He was preserved and kept by a wonder of God's grace. He bore the full punishment from God upon all the sins that we've ever committed and ever will commit. And he endured as the one who was victorious. The one who was faithful. The real righteous one. God has not cast away his people. He punished his son. And his son endured. He bore the wrath. And as such, taking upon himself the full punishment that we deserved, all our sin, all our guilt, he suffered that wrath on Calvary. And then he endured. It is finished. The comfort of God's people throughout all ages is found in that wonder. God is the unchangeable God of his promise. God promised and God sent his own son. He pledged by himself. And Jesus Christ took upon himself that wrath that we deserved in order that we might be purged, purified, made righteous and holy in Christ. The unchangeable God of his promise. And so faithful he is that rather than his wrath against sin going unpunished, he was willing to punish his own son. Now there are many reasons for chastisement. We remain sinners and sinful. We're chastised in our sin. Many are the reasons for that chastisement. Some are given here in this history as Israel sought the flesh pots of Egypt. They desired the leeks and the garlic. Others in the book of Job demonstrating that there are times when chastisements come ordained by God in order to prove to the devil or to demonstrate in another way the faithfulness of his saints. Then all of them, in all those chastisements, the encouragement that God gives us is this. The bush will not be consumed. The church, the saints, will not be cast off. They will not be destroyed. In all of them, God is with them, and he is faithful. And as the faithful one, he always answers prayer. He always gives grace according to need. Agonies, grief, sorrows may be our lot. And we cry out in our need. We're small, we're insignificant, we're lowly as that despised thorn bush. Fear and dread sometimes take hold of us. Temptations are prevalent all around. And distress, it threatens to overwhelm us sometimes in life. Sometimes we look ahead and the future just seems so bleak. We just can't see our way forward. But here is the great I am. He dwells within us by his spirit. Not only did he send his son to stand in our place, Jesus then poured out his spirit into our hearts. And now he cannot deny himself. God remembers his cause. He remembers his own. And he preserves and keeps his church and his saints so that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And he will make all things work together for good for them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. 
We don't merely give expression with our lips to the wonder that God is I am, that I am Jehovah. But from the heart, by faith, we cling to his faithfulness as our encouragement, as our hope, and as our joy. This God is my God. And this God is the only one in all of my life that is certain. He is certain. He is sure. And therefore, by faith, I lay hold on him. He cannot deny himself. He will remember his cause and his saints. And that trust is expressed here by Moses. Moses, Moses, draw not nigh thither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. God calls us to himself, and then God calls us to trust in him, to trust in that name that is above every name. And God assures us that he does all things right as the Holy One of Israel. How often doesn't it shame us when we were all filled with anxiety, we were all anxious about something in life? Perhaps it was a surgery, or we were diagnosed with cancer, or something else. And then we look back a few years later, or even months later, and we realize God was with me the whole time. I wasn't walking by faith. We look at things from an earthly perspective. We're looking at them according to our own sight. And we cover our faces with shame. Shame fills our hearts. Beloved, we think of the future. And when we think of the future, this is the lesson we remember. The bush that's not consumed. The bush that's burning. God's saints in the midst of this world will be oppressed. There will be troubles. There will be trials. But we will not be consumed. We look to the one who is the great I am, and we trust in him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we spend time in prayer. We look to him as the one who will preserve and keep us, as Jehovah alone can. Whatever the way of the Lord be, with you, with me, with the church of Jesus Christ, and how often we may be inclined with the psalmist to take the words of Psalm 77 on our lips. This is the lesson that we need to learn. And this is the lesson that goes with us this week and every week of our lives. My help, my hope is in the almighty God and in his ever-present presence with me. And though there be troubles, though there be afflictions, I look to him, and I believe that I am more than conqueror through Jesus Christ who loved me, through Jesus Christ through whom I am righteous, who has made me holy in him. And as I look at my sin, and that sin clings to my nature, I come into God's presence, I confess my sin, I don't try to hide it, I acknowledge my sin. I don't think I can escape God's just judgment against wrath and against the sinner, but I believe those sins have been borne by my Savior. And I come into his presence then with thankfulness and with praise, confessing, looking to him alone in whom there is faithfulness and truth. And beloved, we look forward to the day when we will sing his faithfulness to all eternity. This God is my God. This God is the God to whom I owe my all. I don't deserve to be in heaven. I don't deserve to have been delivered. I don't deserve a place in Christ's church. But through all the troubles, through all the struggles of life, the I am that I am has not forgotten to be kind. He has remembered his promise, and he will preserve and keep to all eternity 
his church, and his saints. A.M. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of thy goodness and thy love and thy faithfulness. As we find ourselves in the midst of the fires, the troubles, the trials, the struggles of this life, what a joy to know thou art with us, and thou wilt never cast us off, but thou wilt preserve in love thy church and thy saints, and thou wilt grant unto